Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's also where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including this coming week, our one-year anniversary conference featuring speakers such as Francis Fukuyama, Robert Zellick, Thomas Chatterton-Williams and Dorothy Kaczynski. Register at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Jennifer Murtaz Ashvili, Director of the Centre for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh and co-author of the new book Land, the State and War, Property Institutions and Political Order in Afghanistan. Uh, Jen, welcome to Bookstack. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So congratulations on the book. Um, And it's a fascinating analysis of how the rules governing land ownership have driven conflict in Afghanistan for centuries. Uh, I think the story of land and property rights is really a story that hasn't been told much uh, to the outside world about and and how it's driven dynamics of internal conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, So, you know, in this book, we really discuss how efforts by the central government and central governments throughout centuries um, to exert their control over land uh, has really repelled people against the, the center and has really put people in conflict with the self-governing norms that people have in communities, especially over land, um, have, have really been at odds with the central government's desire to control. I mean, it's one of the ironies that you show in the book is that very often community-based land registration projects that document ownership actually seem to be more secure than when the central government, when the state actually does get involved. Absolutely. And I think this is, you know, if we were trying to understand what went wrong in Afghanistan over these past two decades, four decades, actually, of these these conflicts, um, the communities have really uh, strong rules and norms that govern property rights. Uh, They have uh, customary deeds. I did a survey in 2011 and found that 92% of homes in rural areas all have customary deeds. And when there were opportunities over these past two decades to get deeds from the state, legal titles from the state, nobody wanted them. Uh, Because when we think about legal titles and property rights, you need to have a state behind that system that can uh, administer conflicts as they arise, that can enforce conflicts over land. And many people just did not trust the state to do that. So we think about legal titling, you know, there's many theories of development that say, oh, if you give someone a legal title, you know, this is sort of the beginning of the path to prosperity. This is a a theory famously articulated by Hernando de Soto. Um, who had you know, very significant insights into property rights and just said, if you give everyone legal titles, this will solve a lot of problems. We find that legal titles don't solve anything if the state that stands behind them is not trusted. And of course, as you say, one of the reasons why we're thinking about this is because we're trying to understand what has gone wrong with the West's involvement in Afghanistan, uh, not just in the last 20 years. I mean, you can take any figure you like, whether it's going back to the Soviets, whether it's going back into the 19th century and kind of the British and so on, and when it was part of the great game. But uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that you show that these kinds of customary institutions and procedures, they do have a fundamental role because essentially this comes down to how we define political authority um, and relations with ordinary people on the ground. 
for the first several years, um, when I first started working in Afghanistan, um, you know, 15, 16 years ago, so many people told me that the customary system had been wiped out during the conflict, that it didn't exist anymore. And that, and that was, gave a rationale for creating new state institutions to replace them. And I have been screaming, you know, off of soapboxes that this is not the case and that, um, these, customary organizations are quite resilient and quite strong. And not only that, that they've adapted over time to deal with uh, pressing issues that, that face them. And that the, the way that villages are governed is so complicated. There's this constellation of actors at, at the village level. And, um, you know, when we think about traditional leaders or traditional actors, it's not just Afghanistan that has these kinds of, of uh, authorities, right? I mean, Weber famously wrote about traditional authority and contrasted traditional authority with, you know, the rational uh, legal order of a state. But what I found is that in Afghanistan, and what we talk about in this book, is that um, the rules that govern tradition were far more rational and legal than those of the state. And they became very predictable to people. They were reliable and people had no desire to cast them aside for a state that they couldn't trust or didn't understand or felt they really had no role in. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it may be a bit of a stretch, but I, I kept thinking of, of Tocqueville and the emphasis on local decision making and customs and practice and so on. Because one of the things that really comes across strongly in your book is how Afghanistan actually seems to work best when customary and tribal communities counterbalance governmental and decision makers, that there's a kind of equilibrium there that at, at other times, particularly in the last 20 years, has has been missing. Absolutely. And this is, you know, a lesson from Afghan history was that, you know, at the periods of, of history where the center really respected the rights of communities, respected the rights of local self-governance to emerge in a very Tocquevillian manner, that Afghanistan saw peace. You know, so Afghans talk about the long peace they had between 1933 and 1973 under King Zayar Shah. And Zayar Shah was no developmentalist. He was no Lee Kuan Yew. Um, but he understood that in order to have stability, you had to respect the rights of community and more so than most modern leaders he really did respect the rights of communities so when we talk about the role that customary authorities play in property rights that's sort of the I mean that that's a very important sort of technical aspect of what they do but property rights are inherently political so they they provide this political role at the community. They adjudicate land disputes. They protect property, which is actually the key to prosperity and development. But in addition to this, customary authorities, uh, they, they present another important political role, which is protecting citizens from transgressions by state authorities. And that's a very fundamental role. And, and, and it's not just the last 20 years where we've seen difficulties on this kind of thing, to say the least. Um, that there, there were, as you show, previous efforts at land distribution, uh, not least in the late 1970s, but they were an absolute disaster and led to decades-long civil war. Absolutely. So there were so many conflicts, even beginning, um, you know, with kings and monarchs. We trace really the, the genesis of so much of the current conflict to the rule of Abdurrahman Khan in 18, who began his rule, role, uh, rule in 1880. Um, and he uh, he died in 1901, and he was responsible for usurping land from so many minority communities, 
forcibly resettling uh, Pashtuns from the south and the east to the north. And, uh, you know, so many of the conflicts that I'm watching right now on social media, especially in Afghanistan, actually involve these centuries-long conflicts between groups that Abdurrahman Khan settled, uh, to especially Hazara uh, lands, um, that these conflicts remain unresolved. And this forcib forcible movements of people uh, giving land privileges of one group over another, these are conflicts that very much live today. I mean, you you talk about uh, watching some of these things on social media, but actually a lot of the research for this book was fieldwork that you did over several years in Afghanistan itself. That's correct. I, I spent uh, uh, probably three years total uh, in Afghanistan working on this project. And uh, some of this research came out in the first book, my first book, which called which was called Informal Order in the State in Afghanistan, where I tried to understand um, the role that customary authority plays at the local level. I tried to unpack the rules that govern customary authority. And when I came back from my field work, I had about 3,000 pages of transcripts of interviews that I had done. I had done research in about 30 villages. And uh, I talked to uh, Mr. Ilya Murtazashvili, my husband, who's a scholar on property rights. And I noticed how many, how many uh, interviews I did involved land disputes. I thought I was dealing with a governance structure and trying to unpack you know, dispute resolution mechanisms. And he says, oh, what's your <laughs> all of the conflicts you're dealing with involve land. And so then I began to look at this data in a new way, began collecting new, new data, uh, did survey research to really understand how these issues are being dealt with. Uh, so that required several return trips to Afghanistan to do. And, um, and he was actually kind enough to allow me to go. I was pregnant, actually, with our second child and did several trips um, during that period. But... Um, you know, then we also understood how historically rooted so many of these conflicts were, and that came out in my interviews that I had done, is that people remember the rule of Abdul Rahman Khan in the 1880s like it was yesterday, right? They talk about it as if this conflict was alive. And so when the, the intervention comes into Afghanistan as if, you know, Afghanistan is a blank slate, so much of this richness was really missing um, from the way that the U.S. And, and, and then the Soviets before them uh, conducted their interventions. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things that I've heard you speak about uh, before on the in, on the Wisdom of Crowds podcast, that, uh, that th this seems to be something that in the last few weeks the Taliban has actually recognised, that people are frustrated today by the centralised and drawn-out legal processes, not least over land. Uh, the, the Taliban, ironically, seems to recognise that older customary practices are not the same throughout the country. And that that is actually one of the things that they are going to try and use to build some kind of legitimacy. Yes, I mean, I think this is this is a question. Um, the Taliban recognize the power of such authority. But on the other hand, they also prefer their own religious authority. So over the past uh, even when they ruled from 1996 to 2001, they often assassinated and continue to assassinate important customary leaders because they see these leaders as locally legitimate and as a threat to their own rule. So uh, if they can't co-opt them, they kill them. And it's been well chronicled that some of the 
the most significant losses over the past 20 years, especially as this insurgency has raged, is the Taliban killing customary leaders because they may not buy in to the religious uh, doctrine that the Taliban has. So on the one hand, the Taliban is able to weave itself into these bodies, into these structures, but they elevate the role of religious leaders higher than other customary leaders. And I think this is where it, it becomes so fascinating to me is that uh, it's this confluence of actors at the local level, uh, at the villages. You have customary leaders who I, who I generally refer to as Maliks, although the names of these individuals change from community to community. So, um, but a Malik is not a tribal chief. A Malik is sort of a first among equals uh, that communities uh, appoint and they uh, select to represent their interests to the outside world. And I would see these individuals often described in the media as tribal chiefs or you know, feudal lords. And in Afghanistan, actually, Afghanistan was never feudal. It was not a, actually a peasant society. So these individuals were really like primus inter pares. They were first among equals in their communities. And in addition to this, there were village councils, what, which people generally refer to as shuras or jurgas. And these are councils that meet at sort of an ad hoc basis to resolve disputes as they, they arise. And then you also have religious leaders in each community. And so I found that power is actually separated among these three bodies. And when, uh, because power is separated, there are also checks and balances among them that constrain them. So, you know, if you have a mullah traditionally, you know, who would get a little too unwieldy or assert a kind of rule over others, he would be checked by the other two bodies in the community. So when the Taliban come in now, they try to elevate their own network of mullahs over other, um, over these other organizations at the community level. That causes a kind of disequilibrium, right? And, and I think that the Taliban sort of can tap into those norms, but they may not be as effective as they think. And is, is, is this part of the problem, do you think, that, Jen, that, I mean, you talked about uh, people in the media talking about local chiefs and, and so on, that, that there seems to be a lamentable lack of expertise on Afghanistan. So few people who are able to speak about the nuances and complexities of Afghanistan in exactly the kind of way that you did there, breaking down... Uh, all the different ways in which this society operates? Well, I think that, I mean, on the one hand, I would agree with you about 20 years ago that this definitely was the case. But um, I think that there is actually substantial expertise on Afghanistan now. Uh, there's a, a new generation of Afghan scholars that I have seen flourish, you know, especially over the past 10 years. When I first started doing research in Afghanistan, um, you know, almost two decades ago, there was hardly a scholarly community to speak of because so many people had left the country. Um, and internally, there was not even a master's degree to speak of. That has changed dramatically. But I think that the international community had such powerful agendas. There's major disagreements among scholars of Afghanistan as well about um, these kinds of issues. I think many scholars who, who I deal with and, and have interacted with really believe that there should have been a strong state. I've been arguing, you know, based on my research on local governance, uh, that 
you know, there should be more respect, there should be more decentralization. But I think so much of the scholarship on Afghanistan over the past two decades has focused on the role of the international intervention. People have studied it, people have dissected it. It's easier for it, you know, for outsiders to understand and look at. So I, I think that there's no shortage of expertise on Afghanistan. I just think that we have disagreements about how to do it. And what I came away from my work is that the role of the state, we, we prioritize the role of the state. So many political scientists focus on the state. We want to build strong states and we see strong states as sort of the antidote to so many problems. And I came away from my experiences in Afghanistan really trying to understand political authority in a state in very different ways. And this caused me to rethink so many assumptions that I had going into that work that I don't think many political scientists are really have, have been ready to, to tackle or challenge. And do, you, and do you think that that scholarship by political scientists coming out of the universities has filtered through to the State Department, to NGOs, to aid agencies and so on? Because one of the criticisms that we've read a lot in the press uh, over the last few weeks is that, you know, there have been too many people going into Afghanistan uh, from, for example, aid agencies who don't speak the languages and not are not um, um, able to respond to the nuances of the, of the country and so on? I think the international community, and I don't think this is a problem that is, is specific to Afghanistan. I see this in many other places where I work, that I think international development, um, you know, our, our efforts to build democracy overseas, while I'm very supportive of democracy, I think that our efforts to do this um, are not nuanced. Um, we took cookie cutter approaches from other places and brought them to Afghanistan. And then the international community had so many resources stacked behind it that it even became hard for many Afghans to even question it, right? Because the resources were so vast, it became hard to push back against some of these initiatives. Um, so I, I think this is actually quite true of so many places where I see that international development, um, political development, uh, has really become sort of a very entrenched industry with certain approaches, certain people that they celebrate, certain approaches that they celebrate. And, and something that actually surprised me is I found that the military, despite its many shortcomings, was actually much more willing to reevaluate what it was doing, change courses midway. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to have been desired about the overall political strategy that the military was engaged in in Afghanistan. But over time, you could see the military change course. Um, the counterinsurgency strategy was radically different from the strategy that came before it. And in fact, I think that the military in you know, the, its counterinsurgency phase really diagnosed the problems of Afghanistan quite well. I think the challenge was that the military wasn't the appropriate tool to fix these issues. And it's, it's really hard to tell the international community that maybe you should be spending less. Maybe this desire to support, you know, sustainable development goals and provide all of these things to the people of Afghanistan as lofty and wonderful as it sounds is actually undermining the very mission. It's a very complicated situation to tell people 
to do less. And ironically, it doesn't seem to learn the lessons from when the Soviets were there before the Americans, that it is very technocratic, it's top down, uh, it ignores customary uh, practice, local ideas and and, uh, community leaders and so on. It's rural development, sustainable development just seems another name for the same old thing. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a great question is that and this involves trade-offs, you know, policy always involves trade-offs. So, you know, a question I always pose to people is that, um, you know, when I speak to policymakers, you know, even today, people will say, oh, you know, the traditional authorities, the customary authorities have withered away. And I say, well, look at look at property rights. This is a very real thing. They are very involved in this. How can you say when 92% of the population have customary deeds and prefer this to state deeds, um, how can we say that it's withered away? And then on the other hand, yes, women are not present. I mean, I did find examples, and I actually talk about this in my first book of, of women that I found who were leading villages, customary leaders um, of, of villages. But uh, no, women are not, you know, often visibly present in these fora and to the international community with sustainable development goals and gender, uh, you know, gender goals and so forth. This became a huge problem. And I said, well, you are the trade-off here. The policy trade-off is that in a customary system, every family, every household has the right to participate. When you replace that with a state institution that, yes, now every woman can participate, it's actually very few households are. So uh, the state system that we replaced this with, or at least attempted to replace this with, was somewhat something based on enormous patronage and corruption and really limited who could access power. I, I suppose the uh, the iconic figure of us trying to graft uh, our own society onto Afghanistan is President Ashraf Ghani. Um, I mean, in the West, he was praised because he was an Ivy Leaguer. He'd worked for the World Bank. Uh, I think he's, he's even an American citizen. Uh, how did we end up getting that so wrong? Well, I mean, he, he was a product of, of our system. And people knew him and they liked him and they loved the buzzwords that came out of his mouth when he talked about social capital. And, um, you know, he was a great champion of these sustainable development goals. And, and you know, I studied quite closely a rural development project that he had uh, championed in rural Afghanistan uh, with the World Bank that received, you know, $2 billion in funding. And, uh, you know, he created an NGO called the Institute for State Effectiveness. Um, <laughs> right. And and this this group continues to receive contracts from the World Bank. And, and it's just so ironic to me that but it was it was I didn't think much about this until it was the people of Afghanistan, especially in rural areas, were saying, you know, this what what this rural development project is trying to do is so similar to what the communists were doing. It was so similar to what the UN under the Taliban was trying to do. And you're seeing this as, you know, giving us grants for small projects and we're participating in this. But they saw this as political control. And they say, don't you understand what's actually going on here? This is about connecting villages to the state in a way that we don't want to be connected. This is about usurping our authority at the local level in a way that we don't desire. And there was nothing democratic about it, right? And there was nothing democratic about what Ghani did at the local level. 
He never wanted to decentralize power. He talked about listening to people's voices, but never was actually interested in having anyone elected at the local level. The, the Constitution actually called for elected uh, mayors. He never implemented that part of the Constitution. And in fact, I was in Kabul this time, uh, not this time last year, but right when COVID was hitting, like February um, 2020. And I actually gave a keynote address to all to a group of mayors in Afghanistan to talk about peace building and the future of peace building um, in local governance. And this was actually at the request of the Afghan Independent Directorate of Local Governance. And um, all of the mayors, regardless of their ethnicity, where they came from, were saying, we need more decentralization. If there's going to be reconciliation, we need to create local programs and projects that respond to our local needs, not of Kabul. I'm a mayor, I can't even buy a stapler, you know, without asking someone in Kabul for a sign off. And there was an opportunity to have elections. There was an opportunity to give more authority to people at the local level, and that never happened. And that's a, a significant reason why the state collapsed because people didn't trust the state at all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, the, very much the conventional wisdom is that this is the end of democracy promotion. But but it, it seems to me from what you've said that it, it's an open question whether the Afghans ever really got democracy um, kind of uh, over the last 20 years at all. They did not. They did not at all. I think the 2004 election um, that, that put Karzai into power was probably the freest and the fairest. Uh, but, you know, the 2009 election, the 2014 election, every subsequent national level election was highly contested. Um, and, you know, a strong sense from many Afghans that uh, the U.S. put their fingers on the direction of these elections. Um, 2014, John Kerry famously came to Afghanistan and had to broker um, the results of an election because the elections were so corrupt that no one could see who won. And they gave the Afghan people Ashraf Ghani instead of Abdullah Abdullah. And Ghani was Washington's favorite at that time, right? He spoke English. He went to the World Bank. Um, you know, he was a product. Uh, there was a sense that he's a technocrat and, and we can control him or at least work with him in a way that we couldn't um, uh, uh, Hamid Karzai, who came before him. And Abdullah was seen as this Northern Alliance person, you know, related to the warlords. Um, and I think if we look back and, and if the United States had made a different decision at that point, how different Afghanistan might look today, I think it's an important counterfactual that we should really reflect on. But at the local level, people absolutely had no democracy. Uh, people expected things to change after uh, the United States came, they expected to be able to elect their local leaders. And that never happened at the local level is that's where hearts and minds are won. And you can't give people aid and the hand pumps and all of this local level infrastructure and say, now, look, you have democracy. That's not democracy. Afghans could have handled democracy. They were just never given the chance. So do you think that uh, ultimately President Trump was right to negotiate pulling out of Afghanistan and President Biden right to execute it? You know, I, I have I have mixed feelings about how all of this was done, and I'm not really good for hot takes on this. Uh, but I think that um, after two decades of war, the U.S. had no idea, first of all, what it was doing or what its strategy was. Um, and it, there was just such a deep malaise uh, 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 in terms of what the U.S. was doing. The uh, Taliban had increased its control of the countryside. Something radical had to change. 
uh, because it was no longer sustainable. And I mean that in a fundamental way in terms of Afghan lives. You know, something that we're not thinking about that I often think about is what if the Taliban had been able to take control of so much of the countryside this summer with the U.S. still there, right? The U.S. was no longer engaged in combat operations. And I can't help but think that the Taliban were poised to make very significant gains the summer as they had over the previous years. So what Trump did was, you know, tried to put the pressure on the different parties to come together. I don't think strategically some of the aspects of what he did was quite wise in terms of, you know, giving everything up in the beginning and just announcing a withdrawal date. But that put a lot of pressure on Ashraf Ghani, for example, uh, to make some concessions. And he was completely unwilling to. And I think his lack of his inability to engage in any kind of meaningful power sharing when there was more leverage uh, when he had more leverage, was I think we'll look back as one of the biggest mistakes of this era. Yeah, and it does also raise the interesting question, doesn't it? That I mean, what what do we do with Afghanistan in Afghanistan now? The Taliban obviously is in power. I mean, to to what extent do uh, the does the West actually want the Taliban? to thrive and what do we do to support them so things like aid um free of the free freezing of, of finances of the uh in, in in the banks and so on what what do we actually do and, and what outcome do we want from this i i you know i i don't know I have to say, I think I'm very confused about this right now. Um, I think that we want the people of Afghanistan to have prosperity and peace and the, the ability to continue working. So, you know, it was just announced, I think, today that they've unfrozen government salaries so that people who are actually working in the government can continue to get paid. And, you know, a lot of this aid, this money that provides these salaries is coming from the United States. And I do think that the United States has to ask itself, you know, is it willing to support this government? Supporting so many government salaries is, you know, a humanitarian gesture at this point. But there's going to have to be a broader conversation about what this government looks like, who is going to be involved. The U.S. doesn't even have a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. You know, it's saying that it's not going to recognize the Taliban, at least for the time being. I mean, that which seems sort of silly at a certain point, given the vast amounts of U.S. investments in the country. Um, the U.S. is saying that it, it, the U.S. has de facto recognized the Taliban for the past two or three years in these negotiations. Now, uh, you know, trying to put leverage on the Taliban as a government to get some kind of outcome. I mean, I think the U.S. can try, but I think what we've learned over the past 20 years, we, even with all the military uh, presence, with the vast aid resources, is the U.S. wasn't really able to do that very well when it had enormous leverage. How is it going to be able to do that when it doesn't? So the book is Land, the State and War, Property Institutions and Political Order in Afghanistan. It's written by my guest Jennifer Murtash-Ashvili with Ilya Murtash-Ashvili and published by Cambridge University Press. But for now, Jen, congratulations again and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.